Okay, tonight our reading is coming from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and then 15 through 23. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised from him the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, who fills all in all. These are the words of our Lord. Hey, I want you to um, imagine that um, you walk into your dorm or apartment tonight uh, after RUF is over, and the first thing you see is that your room has been destroyed. Um, everything is out of place. The, the, the drawers are pulled out, clothes strewn everywhere. Your bed is sort of tussled, even turned over in that sense. You also notice that the window in your bedroom is open as well. And as you inspect it a little bit closer, you notice that your laptop is gone or your jewelry box is gone and then your television is gone, Right? Now, here's the deal. I want you to stop at that moment and think about your next mental step. Because you're walking in, and what you're trying to do is you've got a lot of raw data. You've got things that have clearly happened in this room with some relative recents, right? Um, But you don't know what to do with it all yet. You see, up until this time, you've never been robbed. And so in some senses, you don't know how to explain what it is that you see around you. But you can't help but make an attempt at it, right? Look, I want to pitch something at you tonight as we dive into this next half of chapter 1 of Ephesians. And it's this one simple premise. And I've really tried for weeks to try to illustrate this, and I hope I can do it. I simply want to try to pitch at you that one of the permanent mainstays of human activity is this constant effort this constant activity that you are always engaged in, in trying to make sense of what's going on around you. In other words, human beings, and and you don't have to be religious uh, to, to be a part of this, but human beings are always trying to gain, by virtue of being planning creatures, are always trying to gain what we might call like a frame of reference. That is parameters around which you can understand what in the world is going on with me right now? Let me see if I can give you a couple of examples. Uh, freshmen, or if you have memory of being a freshman, why is it that the fall is so much worse, socially speaking, for you than the spring? I think most of you would say, spring has been so much better than the fall. Because when you first get here in the fall, there's a sense in which you just don't know 
what's going on. You, you may not even know directions around campus. You, you don't know who your friends are. You don't really have any security in this place that they call home now, which is this cinder block cell they've locked you in called a dorm room. <laughs> and what you do is you spend the first couple months of your time here simply trying to be like, I don't know, I, I don't know what's going on here. I, I would even say this is why Rush is such a traumatic experience for a lot of us. Because you walk in and you don't necessarily know what the rules are. What are the criteria of evaluation that I'm being looked at about right now? How do I know what, what, how I'm supposed to behave in this sense? Let me give you another example. Uh, let's imagine, gentlemen, that uh, all of a sudden, for some reason, inexplicably, she, she is, is hanging around a little bit more, right? And for some reason, she, she's making a whole lot of eye contact, Right? And, um, you know, uh, she actually uh, sort of, she did the, the brush. You know what I'm talking about, the brush, uh, guys, where she kind of is like, oh, yeah, and she just kind of touches your arm like that, and you're like, <laughs> Oh, you know what I'm talking about, the brush. You think to yourself, you freeze that moment, you're kind of like, wait a minute, new data. She hasn't been acting this way before. And so what you're doing is, at any given moment of your life, is you're trying to establish a frame of reference is what I'm, the phrase I'm using, or at least as far as the title of tonight's message is, you're trying to get your bearings. <laughs> what, what's the deal? What, what is going on around me? What does it look like? Okay, I want to pitch to you tonight that the book of Ephesians is God's cosmic and ultimate frame of reference. You follow me on that? What Paul is doing with his favorite congregation, the people in Ephesus, is he's trying to help them face their futures by helping them get their bearings to know how it is that God sees their world and them in it and their participation in it. And so what we find out in this letter is that we have here a God with a goal. He's got a purpose for his people. And, and in many ways, if you were to take the definition of what it means to be a Christian, if you're curious, you'll see that the Christian living is nothing more than trying to see the world through God's eyes and not your own. That is to learn to replace your oftentimes faulty frames of reference with the one that God says about you. Does that make sense? You know this in all other quarters. What happens when, you, when the signals get crossed? You know, ladies, where you think, I, I think he's into me, <laughs> right? And you suddenly get the message wrong. Why? Because you used the wrong frame of reference. See, he was in the friends frame of reference. You know, when we all get depressed about that. He's in the F zone, friend zone. It's not going anywhere, right? You got to have the right frame of reference or your life experiences dysfunction. Look, three thoughts tonight, okay? I want you to get, first of all, Paul's big picture, uh, which is about God's perspective. Secondly, I want you to get the little picture, which is our perspective. That is how we fit into it. And then thirdly, I want you to see the cosmic picture. And in each one of those points, there's a key word that I think unlocks our understanding of this last half of chapter one, okay? All right, first of all, the big picture. The key word in the big picture, uh, uh, first point, is the word secret. Um, Y'all, this outline that I'm using this semester for Ephesians, I am deeply, deeply indebted to uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who is a great Bible teacher at the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, of all places. 
But uh, Ferguson, at the beginning of his sort of messages that I heard him do years ago on Ephesians, says this. He says, if you were to ask him what the book of Ephesians is about, he would say, well, it's a secret. The word secret is what you have translated there, a mystery. And what it says in verse 9, and that's why I had James sort of reread this uh, this week, is that God has a plan for the universe, right? The word will there, his will for the universe, is the word plan, the Greek word for plan. In other words, what Paul says is there used to be something that God was up to that people prior to now didn't get. It was a mystery. But guess what? Now, in this time, we live in momentous times, he's saying, because now it's no longer a mystery. The secret is out. It's being told. It's being passed on to people. And you know what it is? Is that God is going to unite all things under one head, even Christ. Now, before we expand on that, one little small uh, word study note that will help you here. The word unite there actually has a little prefix in front of it, uh, which is the Greek prefix uh, ana, just to justify my three years of of graduate school in seminary. But that little prefix means something. What it means is, is to do something again. So the word that says unite there really means to reunite all things under one head. Paul says that God has been up to something all this time, but now he's finally shown us exactly what it is. You know what it is? To reunite everything under his son. That he is going to come and heal all of the disharmony and unite us all in Christ. Now look, y'all, years ago I heard uh, Keller do an illustration on a completely unrated passage that I have not, that I've used a million times over because I think it's, it's incredibly insightful Look, when we start thinking about God's plan, you need to understand what a system is. What is a system? A system is nothing more than a thing where the individual parts of the thing enhance the whole rather than diminish it. Does that make sense? It's stuff all working together. My favorite example about this was a number of years ago when my wife and I purchased a... um, a very small uh, handheld video camera. These are going the way of the dinosaur because our phones can do all this for us. But anyway, it's a cool little, little device and darned expensive. But one day I learned that all of the component parts of this sophisticated uh, machine called a camcorder f- work together to enhance the whole, to take these lovely photographs, right? But what happens is uh, there's problems that come when you drop it, um, which I did. And the guy, the technician who repaired it for me, uh, said that I had a cracked lens barrel, all right? Now, I have no idea what a lens barrel is and I have no idea why it is a big deal that it gets cracked. But here's the thing. Once the lens barrel is cracked, it's useless, okay? When you introduce dysfunction, right, in the lens barrel, the rest of the thing doesn't work. It's a useless piece of machinery, and it costs a lot of money to fix. But that's whole other story, right? For something that was going to be obsolete in three years. Go figure. <laughs> Look, there are all kinds of systems. What Paul is saying is that when God created the universe, he originally created it as a system that works together, that we're supposed to work together. Let's let, have another example. Your lungs are a system. Your lungs are meant to function in a certain environment that we like to call oxygen. If you take your lungs to, let's say, the planet Venus, right? And you step off your spaceship and take a nice deep breath of that sweet ammonia-laden Venusian air, what'll happen? Your lungs will experience um, dysfunction, shall we say. They will experience alienation, (laughs) right? 
Look, you, why? Because you weren't built for that system. If you bring your lungs out of alignment, your entire body, your whole body is a system. But when you introduce dysfunction in one part, it spreads out to the whole. Hey, guess what? That's the lesson of the Bible, y'all. The message of the Bible is that originally God had created the universe to work so that the parts enhance the whole. Everything about you, your life, your business, your friendships, your neighborhood, your money, your country, your political world, your social world, your economic world, your biological world, everything about you was meant to work together. It's a system. But that system only works if the lens barrel is in place. And what God refers to as the lens bearer is the lordship of Jesus Christ. That without God in the center, you follow me here? Every single other component of the system that is you experiences dysfunction. That's how God made the world, to function originally with him at the head. Ah, but you know the story of the Bible. <laughs> because mankind decided very early on that he didn't want to be a part of that system. And so he pulled himself out of it and rebelled against it. Ah, there's a problem because once he pulled himself, Adam and Eve, out of alignment with that primary component, he pulled himself out of alignment with just about everything else in life too. In other words, you experience dysfunction between you and God, and in some senses there are dysfunction all around you as well. There's breakdown. There's alienation. There's disintegration. You experience the decay or what the Bible calls death. But here's the good news. The good news is this. Jesus has come, definitively has, has come, and has set himself up as Lord of the universe. And because he has done so, God has begun his project of setting the world to rights. That's it. That's the story of the Bible. <laughs> What's the lesson of the Bible? The Bible is that God's secret intention, the Bible is about God's secret intention, which is nothing less than this. You ready? It's a secret. Worldwide global healing. That's it. And we're not just talking spiritually. We're talking physically too. This is not just spiritual things where people get their heart right with God. We're talking actual human fulfillment to experience life the way it was designed to be. Right? And now, now in the fullness of time, Jesus has come to bring that very thing about. All right. Now why would I go into all that? That system thing still, I think that's brilliant. Why would I go into that? Let me give you at least two reasons why I think this is huge, the big picture. Number one, because if you are an American Christian or have any sort of experience with American Christianity, my guess is you likely have an extremely individualistic view of what it means to be a Christian. You know what I mean by that? Uh, American Christianity is very self-referential. In other words, Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins so that I could go to heaven when I die. Right? Isn't that what Christianity is about? <laughs> well, look, Paul is looking and saying, um, yes, that's true. But what a, a pathetically microscopic view of God's larger plan. God is not just here to heal you. <laughs> God is here to fix everything. The entire universe. Um, in, in, in Revelation chapter 22, there's a wonderful little prediction about what's coming in the future with the city of God, the celestial city. And it says there in chapter 22 that there's a river flowing through the center of the city. And there's a tree on the banks of that, the tree of life. And you know what it says it's for? It is there for the healing of the nations. God is fixing the world, not just you, 
For most of us, we came to Christianity because we came to get our little neuroses healed. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's a great place to go get your neuroses healed in the God of the Bible. But here's the deal. That's not what it's all about. And I would say the irony is you're probably not going to be able to deal with your own neuroses until you get lost in his program. Because it's not about you. It's about what God is doing all around us. That's the first thing. We've got to get out of this Christianity was only for me mentality. The second reason is this. This insight shows Christians what their lives are all about. There's a lot of struggle in college to sort of discern the will of God. You know, Les, I just want to know what the will of God is. I really just wish I knew what he wanted me to do. Well, in some sense, you can ask that question, the micro, but you don't have to wonder about the big deal. Whatever you do, whatever vocation you're involved in, if you're going to do it as a Christian, the Bible will say it must be done to bring about a healing in the world. That's it. What you do is supposed to take this world that is disintegrated, that is coming apart, that is wildly dysfunctional. And my job, my marriage, my children, my daydreams, my money, it is all going and being funneled to that end and no other. Look, what this means is, is your struggle with the will of God is, most of you want kind of like the magic trick. God just like, poof tells you, I'm supposed to go to Nashville and take that job at the accounting firm. The Lord just told me. Right? That's what we want. And I want to look and go, no, 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 that's not where the question's going to be. The question's going to be is what happens when you find out that that firm who's offered you the big job actually has a reputation for gouging the poor? What are you going to do then? I don't know what God's will is. Yes, you do. The answer is no. Because if that person contributes to the breaking down of the world and the destruction of the world, I can't be a part of it. Why? Because I'm a Christian. And God's about reuniting all things. This is everything, y'all. This is politics. This is, this is ecology. This, this is your business. This is your marriage. Everything in the big picture is enhanced towards him. All right. That's the first and longest of the three points. Because <laughs> it's such a big deal. That's the first one. The big picture. The idea of the secret that God's bringing. Okay, second point. The small picture. In other words, the next question is, so what does that mean for me? What, how do I get involved in that bigger picture, in the small picture? Well, the key word in this one is Paul's word, enlightenment. He prays there that your hearts would, your eyes would be enlightened there. In what? The knowledge of him. Look, y'all, one of the first most beautiful truths of what Paul is saying here is that the basic business of being a Christian is to know God. How can I be a part of this big picture? Answer, to know God. You read John 17 and Jesus praying his high priestly prayer. All he's talking about is that, Father, you know me and I know you, and now they know me. And so I know that they now know you. Jesus is saying that in, if you really want to know what being a Christian is about, it ultimately has to do with knowing God. That, that, that's the whole reason for, for driving a Christian in anything because of the knowledge of God. And we could talk a semester about that topic of why the knowledge of God is so vital. But let me just throw out a couple thoughts. Because Paul is not talking about sort of a generic sort of knowing. Ah, oh, I'm aware of God. No, no, he mentions three things in this small picture that are huge to illustrate this. Number one, he says the first piece of knowledge that I want you to get is hope. That there is a hope now, look, you need to get out of your mind what we typically think of by the word hope, which is kind of like cross fingers. Oh, I hope that I make a good grade on this test. I hope she says yes when I ask her out to formal, right? That's not what the word hope here means. The word hope actually means um, a resolve. 
It's a conviction. For Paul, a hope is not wishful thinking. A hope is like the thing that I built my entire life upon. It's a, it's, it's a settled conviction that I know because this is what I built my life on. That's the hope. Ah, but now notice, finish that sentence. It's not just a hope in general, but it's a hope in his calling. Think about that for a second. This is another uh, Kellerism here where Keller says that when you walk up to somebody and if you have to call somebody, you, they're typically not, you don't have to call somebody when they're looking at you. You ever thought about this? If you're face to face with someone, I have to be like, hey, because they're looking at you. But the Bible assumes that God, when he brought you to his hope, had to call you. What's the, uh, what, what's the inference there? <laughs> the inference there was that I was ignoring him and actually running away from him, right? Look, y'all, the hope that Paul is talking about is this mere fact that when God called you, he actually had to forcibly get your attention. Otherwise, you would never have responded to his call. <laughs> that his call was what the theologians call efficacious. It brings about the effect that it's asking for, right? He says it. He calls, and you follow. It's a movement. Now, here, some of you are saying, okay, why are you parsing this out? I, I get it. But look, that's huge because what that means is, is your hope, your conviction, what you can build your life upon is not in your calling, but in his calling. It's not in the fact that I conjured this up and like did the right thing. It's the fact that he made the first move towards me. Oh, no, that's real hope because it's something that he did and he doesn't mess stuff up, right? Look, Paul wants you to know hope, know that conviction, secondly. He says, secondly, that I want you to know about his riches. He says, I need you to know the riches, right, that are contained uh, in Christ, so that you may understand that thing. Actually, that's worth reading. That's got to be read. Yeah, look at the, the end of verse uh, 18 there. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, did you catch that? That the riches that he's talking about are not your riches. He's not saying the riches that the saints have. We talked about that last week, that we all have an inheritance that's waiting for us on the other day. Ah, don't miss it. Read it again. This is oh, the best thing you've heard all week, I promise. <laughs> it's his riches in the saints. Now you're thinking to yourself, okay, God's riches. I thought when I was in Sunday school that I heard he, uh, what, like owned the cattle of a thousand hills, right? I mean, God, God, riches. What could possibly be God's riches? Let me ask it this way. This is a better way to ask this. What, what do you look at in your life that when you see it, it makes you feel wealthy? In other words, what if God, my children are such, I'll be honest with you. I, I, there are times in which you just kind of get blown away by the sheer thought of them, but that's, that's a diversion. Oh, that's the reason why I always use the hook illustration. From, uh, Peter Pan has discovered that he's Peter Pan again, right? And his son doesn't even know him, right? Why? Because he couldn't find his happy thought. He looks at his son and says, I found it. I found what it was. You know what it was? It was you. <laughs> God is saying, and what Paul is saying, he wants you to know so that you can understand how to be a part of this big program, is that when God looks at you after what he has done for you in Christ, he says, you make me feel wealthy. 
The passage says, what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints? You are God's inheritance. When he looks at you, he feels wealthy. Have you ever had that thought about God? i got to be frank with you. Until I was in, really, after college, it never occurred to me to ever think of God as anything but disappointed in me. Never occurred to me. And the reason was because I didn't know the gospel. The gospel is not, well, I tell you what, if you repent and you, like, do a bunch of good stuff and you be a little more regular to RUF, then, you know, maybe, maybe, just maybe you'll have eternal life. And maybe you'll, have, you'll, you'll be a Christian. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that when I do what I'm done in you and for you in my son, Jesus Christ, I look at you and feel like I, that's the most valuable thing that I could have. Who talks that way? There's no other religion that comes close to this. All right, I got to go. Ah, running out of time. Hope, riches, and thirdly, notice what he says lastly, is he talks about power. Power. This one's a huge one, right? And what kind of power, he says? The power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that's a little bit weird. Why would he say that? Um, why wouldn't Paul look and say that God showed you his power, the power of a, of a hurricane, right? Uh, or a power of a Midwestern blizzard, you know, that we're having right now. Uh, uh, the power of lightning. That's not what he says. He looks and says, I want you to know the power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Why would he say that? You want to know why? And here's the funny thing. You've got to be older to know this. And everybody always calls me depressing when I talk about this. But you need to talk about this. The older that you get, the more you realize that death is the real problem. This is the real problem. And some of you have faced death prematurely. And some of you have faced death. And you looked and realized this is a problem. Because here's the deal. We're all headed in that direction. Sorry to, sorry to ruin your Wednesday night. It is an absolute certainty that we will all end up there in a casket one day with people walking past saying, everybody, everybody in this room, the older you get, the more you look and say, death is the real problem. And Paul looks and says this, he says, the kind of power that God wants you to know so you can be a part of his big picture is the kind of power that can overcome death or do what Aslan did at the stone table in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And what happens? He looks and says, ah, but what you didn't understand is the deep magic. The deep magic from before the dawn of time. That if somebody, a willing sacrifice comes, that the table will be broken. And what will happen? Death will start to work backwards. That's it. (laughs) Paul is saying that death has started to work backwards. What is the backwards of death? Life. Stuff is coming to life. You start to wrap your mind around that hope around the fact that you are God's riches and the fact that you've got the power to actually remove the boogeyman from your future of death, you'll be a part of the big picture. It'll change you. Ah, But to what end, you're asking? I'm glad you asked. Brings me to my third and shortest of three points. Because you not only need to see the big picture, you not only need to see the small picture, but you need to see the cosmic picture. Look, y'all, the key word in this point is the word dominion. You get that at the very last there. Look, the cosmic picture has to do with God's intentions for the cosmos. And it's found there in verse 22 and 23. Because Paul is looking and saying that he is absolutely convinced that Jesus is now Lord over every area of life. Now listen very carefully. I did not just say that Jesus is the Lord of every area of 
your life. That is not what Paul is saying. You meaning you, a Christian who would be so good as to come to RUF on Wednesday night. No. What he's saying is, is every area of, your, of, of the world's existence, every single area, every single inch of cosmic space, whether it is being obedient to him as a redeemed Christian or, or even something that is rebelling against him, it's all under his authority. We, as Christians, we, we, we so misrepresent this. <laughs> you ever heard Christians talk like this way? You know, the truth is you have Jesus as your Savior, but you need to make him the Lord of your life. Hey, y'all, nobody makes Jesus Lord of anything. Paul is saying he is the Lord, whether you acknowledge him or not. That is, that is a non-negotiable in his existence, that he has established his absolute lordship so that no one escapes Christ's dominion because of what he's done on the cross. Now, for a lot of us, that sends shockwaves through us because we need to all of a sudden realize what that means. Yes, that's true. But here's the good news. For those who have come to know him by faith and repentance, he adds a little bit of a tagline. Did you notice this? Look what it says there in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. That's the dominion that he was talking about in the verse before. And gave him as head, dominion, over all things to who? To the church. Jesus' lordship is something that is given to the church. Now, look, there's a lot of Christians, when they first hear this, they get very excited, and with good reason. Because what Paul is saying is this, is that Jesus is exercising lordship over the universe right now because there are gifts that he's giving to the church, to his people. It's all for you, kids. It's all for you. And yet, once again, Christians speak so we don't understand what we're saying oftentimes because we talk about things like, well, the truth of the matter is I really like to listen to Christian music. And I remember growing up thinking, hmm, so we only listen to the saved notes. Which ones are those? <laughs> hey, hey, brace yourselves here. All music is God's music. <laughs> there it is. Whether it comes from the hand and the amp of a Christian person, a believing person, or, brace yourselves, a non-believing person. Did you catch that? Jesus is looking at God. In Matthew, it even says that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, we believe, and this is what the people call the doctrine of God's common grace, that God has dispensed gifts of wisdom and beauty and justice and insight to all of creation, even to those who are rebelling against him actively. Did you catch that? That's a biggie. That's a biggie. Even to people who reject God, they are capable because of God's common grace of saying true things about the world. Okay, some of you are thinking, uh, I got to rethink some stuff. I'm not saying that they are converted because of that. I'm saying God is fully capable and often does use even the efforts of people who are rebelling against Him to create beauty, insight, wisdom, and truth. Now, look, this ought to be both a humbling and encouraging notion for you, and I'll finish with this. It's humbling, first of all, because for a lot of us, we're going to have to realize that it is entirely possible that your non-Christian professor may have something to teach you. Did you catch that? That we honor truth from God's mouth wherever we find it, even when it drips off the list of somebody, lips of someone who otherwise is rebelling against God. That includes the musician. We've got to get humble. It very well may mean that for some of us, we might need to learn 
that our nation might be better off to elect the non-Christian over the Christian because the non-Christian is inept. I mean, the Christian is inept. Did you catch that? I messed that up. It's okay to vote. Martin Luther once said this. He said, you know, I'd rather be ruled by a wise Muslim than a stupid Christian. Why? Because God is capable of just, <laughs> some of y'all are having, <laughs> I wish I had pictures of your faces right now. <gasps> That's not what Glenn Beck said. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Look, y'all. A Christian is one who has learned to see God's fingerprints over every area of life. Every area of life. Even coming from the mouths, the, the instruments, and the insights of people who don't care a thing about them. And are you ready, Christian? Are you ready? You ready? It's for you. It's all for you. Innovation. Uh, technology. Even in those senses are given in, in, by, given by God for insight for the church, for his people. I mean, that's huge. This ought to be the most encouraging thing you got. It's all for us. Look, y'all, let me ask you this question. Do you have God's frame of reference for your life? Is it time for some of you to get your bearings uh, on your life? Look, how about this one? Let me try this one. Something right now is giving you the bearings for your life. What is it? Because I'll bet you it doesn't come anywhere close to this. Nothing comes close to this. This is good news. It's better than the news that we often get. Do you believe it? Consider it an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then you're going to have to help us. Because the truth of the matter is, is we have imagined a world. We have imagined your world as if you are absent from it. And it's caused us to only be concerned about our own little salvation and getting ourselves to heaven. And it's caused us to, to deny ourselves the very power that you've given us of encouragement in the gospel. And for that reason, Lord Jesus, we are, we are not seeing your fingerprint on every area of life. Lord Jesus, of course, this brings up a thousand complicated questions as to how to discern what is and is not truly your truth. Of course it does. But at least, Father, we know that at the heart of it, you have done something for us and intention for your people. So perhaps tonight, if you would just allow us a little crack in the door to look over into the world as you see it, maybe we might see something that we never saw that might change us and make the spring of 2011 a, a different semester when our, when our minds were blown. Would you do that? Or, Jesus, that would make our time here this evening worthwhile. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.